You're listening to TED Talks Daily. I'm your host, Elise Hugh. I know I'm not alone in feeling paralyzed sometimes by my own insecurities and self-doubt. The questions like, am I good enough for this? Am I even suited for it? Or maybe I shouldn't even do my best and I'll underprepare because I'm scared of failing. All of this is part of imposter syndrome. And in today's episode from Work Life with Adam Grant, he uses the latest research to help us overcome that kind of thinking. If you like what you hear, find Work Life wherever you're listening to this. About a decade ago, I wanted to bring more curiosity to campus outside the classroom. I decided to start an author series where I'd invite writers to give a talk and answer questions from students. My students told me it would be much more engaging to see a fireside chat, that I should interview the authors on stage. And I balked. Here's how a former student, Pam Klein, remembers that day. I remember you saying to me that there's no way I'm going to sit on stage awkwardly and that it made you generally uncomfortable to have everyone watching you do the interview. I was too insecure. What if I asked dumb questions or accidentally offend the author? What if in trying to be respectful to the author, I bore the audience? What should my hands be doing? How do I not look like I have resting jerk face? What if the student newspaper makes fun of me? Our students pushed back. And finally, I said, well, you host it then. I ended up volunteering because you were so uncomfortable and it made me uncomfortable and I wanted to help you. I was nervous about being on stage too, but I figured, you know, the stakes were relatively low and it would be a great chance to practice public speaking. And in the end, it really wasn't a big deal at all. Pam covered for me in my own author series and covered for my insecurities. As I watched her do an amazing job, I realized I had a choice. I could only take on tasks where I knew I'd succeed, or I could take risks that would challenge me to grow. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist. I study how to make work not suck. In this show, I take you inside the minds of fascinating people to rethink how we work, lead, and live. Today, how to overcome the costs of insecurity and make it work to your benefit. Thanks to Logitech for sponsoring this episode. Everyone has insecurities. They're those moments of self-doubt where you question yourself or your abilities. Am I creative enough to solve this problem? I don't know how I got this promotion. I'm not as competent as they think I am. Am I smart enough to impress this client? They're going to find out. When you think of insecurity, you probably think of self-esteem. But they're not the same. Self-esteem is how highly you think of yourself, how much confidence you have. Security is how stable your confidence is. And insecurity is the opposite, where your confidence is unstable. Take bullies. Growing up, your mom probably told you they picked on people because they had low self-esteem. Sorry, mom, that's not the case. Psychologists find that bullies usually have high self-esteem, but it's fragile. They think they're awesome, 
but if you insult their intelligence, they're easily threatened. So they want to beat you up to make themselves feel better. At work, if you're insecure, making one mistake can bring your entire sense of competence and worth crashing down. Being secure means your confidence isn't easily shattered. You can fail without feeling like a complete failure, which is important because failure is a stepping stone to success in so many jobs. When I first started doing stand-up, I was 16, so I was very insecure just in general. Taylor Tomlinson got into comedy after her dad signed them both up for a comedy class. And she kept at it long after the class was done. But her insecurities didn't go away. When I first started going to L.A. to do spots, it was so hit or miss. This job is really anxiety-inducing. And so there was a long time where I was like, should I just be a teacher? I've had, I've had panic attacks where, yeah, you have to be at a show in like 10 minutes, and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And there were certainly times that I was like, why am I doing this to myself? Why in the world did you want to do this whole stand-up comedy thing? You could have easily quit. I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin until I started doing stand-up. I felt like, wow, I get to be the person I dream about being for 10, 15, 20 minutes. And the gap started closing as I got older and better to where who I was offstage matched who I was on stage. So much of my stand-up is made up of experiences that I'm embarrassed of. That when I started doing stand-up, I got to sort of take the power back from those experiences. And so every time something bad happened to me, I could turn it into a joke. And it didn't feel like I made a stupid mistake. It just reframed everything and helped me look at my life in a much gentler way because it was like, okay, now everything can be material. Taylor spent the next decade performing and sometimes failing on countless stages. It was only when I did it all the time that I wasn't afraid of it. And her hard work eventually paid off. At 25, she was one of the youngest comedians ever to be invited to do an hour-long special on Netflix. I actually cried because I felt so scared and so guilty that I got it. Because I was like, wow, I'm not good enough. And I somehow tricked Netflix into giving me this opportunity that I can think of dozens of people who deserve it more than me. I was really petrified. I was really nervous that people were going to think it was trash. And so it could have totally been that I wasn't ready and it wasn't good. She did it. And it was better than good. I'm an introvert. Is anyone else an introvert? <laughs> All right, that was a test and you failed. Uh, <laughs> no introverts ever gone, woo, at any decibel. Real introverts are parked outside going, is it even worth it? I don't know who she is. <laughs> Insecurity itself is not a problem. Research shows the problem lies in how we try to cover up our deficits rather than facing and dealing with them effectively. The first mistake is becoming paralyzed by doubt. If you go to see a headliner 
or someone who's been doing it for 10, 15, 20 years, you'll be so intimidated and paralyzed that you won't even try. So I was terrified going on stage for years. There were definitely times that I thought, why am I doing this? I don't know that I'm cut out for this. I don't have the personality that is suited for this job and this business and this industry. And I felt that way for a long time and I wanted to be good at it so badly that I just had to push through it. But it was really hard. If you find a reason to push past the paralysis, the second mistake is that insecurity stops you from trying hard enough. You don't give it your best shot because you're afraid to find out that you don't have what it takes. The first few years that I was doing stand-up, I didn't think I could do it as a job until I met somebody who was like, you're actually being kind of dumb. <laughs> like You're sort of like squandering your abilities because you're not working hard enough. And it's because you're scared and you're not performing as much as you could be because you're afraid of failing and you're afraid you don't deserve to be here and you're really only hurting yourself. And if you don't make it as a, as a performer, you have no one to blame but yourself. There's this whole body of research on self-handicapping about how when people aren't sure if they're good enough at something, um, they deliberately underprepare because then they don't have to find out if they're any good. Oh, 100%. I think I still do that with acting stuff. I sometimes tell myself, well, I'm just focused on other things and I don't really even care about this. And so you don't prepare for it like you would prepare for something else that you believe you could actually do. Self-handicapping shields you from finding out that you're not any good. The trouble is that it also prevents you from finding out if you have the potential to be great. You won't know whether you have what it takes until you make a real investment. So you just have to rise to the occasion and be worthy of the opportunities you've been given. At a certain point, you just have to go, this is the best I can do right now. I did everything I could. Which often doesn't feel like it's enough. You either imagine people are saying horrible things about you or judging you. And sometimes they tell you. In male-dominated fields, research shows that women are more likely to be doubted by others. They have to work harder to prove their competence. And even the compliments are often backhanded. There's a lot of like, you're my favorite female comedian. You're one of the best female comedians working right now. Nobody says Bill Burr is my favorite male comedian. Nobody does that. They just say comedian. You do feel like you're in this sort of other group where you're like, you're the best t-ball player. And you're like, I thought we were all playing baseball, but I guess not. So it does make you feel like you're being judged in a different way. So you become obsessed with seeking external validation by proving yourself to others, which is the third mistake. Research reveals that pursuing validation backfires. It's impossible to produce work that everyone loves all the time. If you base your self-esteem on other people's approval, your confidence will always be unstable. It's exhausting emotionally. It's why looking for external validation doesn't work. And it's hard because our entire job is external validation and instant gratification. And you don't think you're good enough. And you go, if I get this thing, that'll prove to me that I am good enough. But then even when you get the thing that you expected to fix you, you only see all the reasons 
why you're still right that you're not good enough. I mean, it's confirmation bias, right? A healthier approach to managing insecurity is to stabilize your self-esteem by making it less dependent on external validation. A good starting point? Decide whose approval actually matters to you. Now with the internet, it is so much easier to find the people who like you. It's very similar to finding someone to partner up with for life. Not everybody is going to want to marry you. You just have to find the people who do want to marry you. And that's how stand-up comedy is. Not everyone's going to think you're funny. But you have to find someone and just make a lot of those people aware of you until you have your fan base. Those four words, just not for me, that has made a huge difference for me and my insecurity and my imposter syndrome in this business where I just have to say, I'm just not for them. There are plenty of people that I am for, and that's who you have to focus on. Choosing your audience can help to stabilize your confidence. Of course, you might not be able to ignore everyone else's opinions altogether, but you can change how you want to be seen. Taylor decided that even if people didn't love her performance yet, they could still respect her resolve. I think it just comes down to work ethic. Because you can't change how talented people think you are or how much people like what you do, but you can make people respect how hard you work. So while I'm maybe insecure about who I am and I have reasons to be, I know that I work really hard. I feel confident about that. What Taylor's describing is a shift from extrinsic to intrinsic motivation. Pursuing excellence at a task because you enjoy it. Focusing on the activity for its own sake, instead of just the results or rewards that might follow from it. People used to ask me what my goals were, and I used to say, I just want to perform in theaters. That's my goal. And this is still my goal, and it's happening now. I think if you focus on how you want your life to be, instead of how you want people to perceive you, I would like to have stand-up specials that are successful so that people come out to see me do what I love. And that's what I want my life to look like. Evidence shows that we're less likely to become discouraged by setbacks when we shift our goals from extrinsic image to intrinsic mastery, from proving our competence to improving our competence. If you're a student, that means worrying less about acing the test and more about gaining a strong command of the material. If you're a new manager, it's shifting your attention away from impressing your team with your knowledge and toward building your knowledge. In other words, you focus less on looking good and more on getting better. Taylor does this with new jokes. She tests them out on her audience. I guess I don't feel horrible when people don't laugh now. On stage, sometimes I just say like, guys, that works everywhere. That was on you. I don't know what happened. If everyone could just get it together because we have another 20 minutes. <laughs> but if I'm trying something new and it doesn't work, I just go, all right, that doesn't work. But succeeding so young hasn't magically melted away her insecurities. In some ways, it's magnified them. It just made me feel like I was tricking people, even more so. Where I'm like, well, it's not that I'm really good at stand-up, it's just that I'm young. I'm just young and lucky. I have an angle. It's that I'm a child. <laughs> 
there is a complete contradiction in saying, on the one hand, you don't think you're good enough as a comedian. On the other hand, you think you're a way better judge of your own comedy than all the Netflix people. How arrogant. Oh, wow. This is blowing my mind a little bit. I have imposter syndrome in a lot of areas of my life where I feel like I'm tricking people. But that is me going, I'm so smart, I figured it out. I see through me. (laughs) (laughs) No one else does, but I get it. Yes. And if you're going to trust your own judgment, you can't only trust it when you judge yourself negatively. Yes, that's true. So I just have to find a way to think, well, I do trust you. (laughs) I trusted you when you said I was garbage. So you must be right now. Although I'm afraid because... The alternative, what you've been doing, has clearly worked extraordinarily well for your career. So I don't want to do anything to sabotage it. That's the real issue with all this is I would really love to not be so anxious. But it does make me really good at my job because I try harder because I'm afraid of failing. And if I didn't have that fire under my ass, maybe I wouldn't be as good. How do you turn insecurity into motivation? More on that after the break. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. I play a personal role in selecting the sponsors for this podcast because they all have interesting cultures of their own. Today, we're going inside the workplace at Logitech. Even before a pandemic happened we had initiatives like work from anywhere which meant that pretty much you're next to a beach uh, or on snow-capped mountain or anywhere else you're free to work from there meet pariket Bhattacharjee. he works at logitech and lives in shanghai in january 2020 pariket and his wife went to india to see family and friends on what was supposed to be a week-long holiday and by the time we reached and we spent that week, it became a full blooming pandemic in China. And it was a scary environment there. And we couldn't go back. That so-called vacation has become a year and a half long journey. Pariket has adapted to working remotely from his family's hometown during the pandemic, but not without some setbacks. It's a tiny place. Uh, we have limited resources in terms of the strength of internet connectivity. And I had a terrible time working. Caring about people has long been a core value at Logitech. Everyone was sort of connecting with me on a a day-to-day basis, checking on me, how am I doing? There were times when I was on a Zoom call and I looked a little stressed because of the entire way I'm working and it's not like I'm I'm being able to be my 100% because of all these distractions around me. And they would look at me and they would be like, take a couple of days, leave and come back when you feel better. And that sort of says a lot about the culture of a company, right? One of Logitech's principles is to put humanity first. Even pre-pandemic, many employees enjoyed the option to work from anywhere. Also, the first Monday of every month, we are given holiday, all of us, the entire organization, to refresh ourselves. And these Mondays off really is a big blessing because you get three days together and you can refresh yourself and you come back really pumped up to deliver your best again. The opportunity to create a flexible schedule is another initiative that Pariket has appreciated particularly when he was recovering from COVID. Especially after COVID, when I was feeling sick or not feeling well, uh, I was offered flexible working hours. I think one of the good things about Logitech is, as a company, it listens. It really listens to what the employees are thinking, what they are facing, what they are doing. That piece of humanity is what makes this organization so special. 
Research has shown that especially during the pandemic, flexible work arrangements can go a long way toward helping employees cope with stressful situations. By providing flexible hours, Logitech was able to give Pariket the space and time he needed. This is a very, very worrisome time. Everyone has anxiety right now in terms of uh, what's happening in this world, when we will go back to the normal again. What you need right now is to really have that good rest. You need to play back and, and just relax and let it go. And that will really help you in this uh, pandemic situation with a more happy and, and content mind. Logitech has a strong culture of valuing employees and their communities. Learn more at Logitech's company page on LinkedIn. My first experience of imposter syndrome was probably when I was nine years old, when I came from Nigeria to the U.S., and it was the first time I ever felt different. Meet Lovey Ajayi Jones. And I walked into that classroom in Chicago in October, where it's cold, and I instantly knew that my name was different, my accent was different, that everything about me was strange. Like, nobody told me I was strange, I just knew and felt it. And I knew I had to adjust who I was to fit that room. And I think we learned very early on how to adapt and how to shift ourselves for the room, as opposed to making the room shift for us. I lost my accent by listening to how the kids were speaking, but I was still only going to change myself to a certain point. I could have brought sandwiches to school, but I still brought jollof rice. One time I tried to bring a sandwich to school, but I miss my actual spices. I think that might be a metaphor for your life, Lovey. that ever since that day, you have refused to leave the spice behind. I, that's, <laughs> that's it. That's a word. That's a word, Adam. That's it. I do not leave the spice behind. Like, the spice is coming with me. Even when I try not to, to like, stand out, I stand out. Lovey started her career as a marketing coordinator at a nonprofit. After getting laid off, she struggled to find a job. Eventually, she decided to focus on her blog, Awesomely Lovey. People were drawn to her wisdom, her humor, and her conversational style. When I started blogging in 2003, I just was writing the truth out loud. Because blogging at that point was not considered a career, I was able to tell the truth out loud in public because I wasn't doing it for strategy. As her audience grew, so did her prominence. Lovey was invited to report at the Oscars. She wrote a book that hit the New York Times bestseller list, and she started giving a lot of public speeches. But there was still one stage she hadn't been on, the Red Circle. Then, in 2017, she was invited to give a TED Talk. I instantly said no. They would think it's trash and say, you're right, lovey. You should not be there. <laughs> the idea that you, the person that we've all looked at and said, I do not want to have to speak after lovey. I'm going before her. You didn't think you were ready is insane. Right, because I didn't think I was ready for that stage. A couple months passed, and Ted asked again. Lovey declined again. I was coming up with all type of good excuses, okay? They were good excuses. That was major imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. You've definitely heard of it. You might even be feeling it right now. 
It's when other people's views of your competence exceed your confidence. How could it be that even after so much proven success and praise, Lovey could still feel like an imposter? What happens with imposter syndrome, it doesn't go away, it shapeshifts. Tell me more about that. People think you get to a certain level of your career and all of a sudden, all is well, you're the confidence person who was just like, I got everything handled, I would do it all without a problem. There's a special skill for people who are successful that is also a vice in that we are constantly looking for ways to be better. The reason why it's a vice is because we never rest in what we do or where we are. We're always like, so what's the next mountain for me to climb? That is in itself a form of imposter syndrome because you're constantly looking to prove something. So now you feel like you have to earn this spot that you now have. So sometimes imposter syndrome in the beginning, especially, might be, I can't do this. Then it can be, I'm not ready for this. Then it can become, I need to continue to earn my greatness. So it is just this continuous battle with ourselves and with what we think is enough. Ambitious people have a hard time knowing when something is enough. We get something and we're already on to the next thing. Like, okay, well, you're like, wait a minute. You just did this really cool thing. You're making me think that one of the reasons that achieving something doesn't make imposter syndrome go away is it raises the bar for how good you have to be, right? So before, if I published a book, then I've accomplished something. And now, if it's not a New York Times bestseller, I failed. Correct. So as we hit the bar each time, which is a good thing, what we don't realize is we might be setting ourselves up for failure a little bit because now we're just like, I've done it eight times before. Why can I do it again? Imposter syndrome seems like a debilitating form of insecurity. If you make it into a syndrome, it is debilitating. Walk around with the chronic belief that you're a fraud, that you don't deserve any of your success, and it can hold you back. But those moments of insecurity don't have to be a disease or a disorder. They're everyday doubts about whether you're as good as other people think you are. So most people, when they think of this phenomenon, they tend to think that it's something that women only experience. And what recent work is actually trying to show is that, hey, this is actually prevalent across races, genders, and occupational categories. Almost 70% of people seem to have these thoughts, at least at some point in their lives. Basima Tufik is a management professor at MIT. When she started her career as a consultant, she felt like an imposter. And really the whole point of consulting is to sort of go into other people's companies and tell them, hey, I think I can help you do this better. But I always had this thought of like, well, but I haven't actually been there for that long. You're sort of sitting there being like, hey, I'm supposed to be an expert on this, but I feel like there's so much more that I want to learn. Basima has studied imposter thoughts among investment professionals, medical professionals, and military cadets. And she finds an outcome that's pretty much the opposite of what their imposter thoughts would have them believe. People with workplace imposter thoughts actually appear to report higher levels of mastery a couple months down the line. It's not necessarily that they're working harder, but they're working longer. Those imposter thoughts also motivate people to focus more on others. For example, when medical students have those insecurities, they make better eye contact with patients and listen more carefully to them. They don't think they have all the answers. People with more frequent imposter thoughts get rated as better collaborators, especially if they're men. 
And that might have to do with sort of the stereotypes that we attach to women. We sort of expect them to be helpful and cooperative. And so when they do these sort of behaviors, they're not necessarily rewarded for it because people have different expectations coming in. There's also reason to believe that women are more likely to internalize their doubts and ruminate about them. Anxiety is still a part of this process. What typically is studied is something around fear of being found out, whether it might be useful to actually think about whether this correlation, this overlap is higher in women versus men. Maybe for women, when they have workplace imposter thoughts, they think other people think I'm smarter than I think I am. They have a lot more fear that other people are going to find out that they're not as smart. So interesting. Whereas men just wander around thinking, of course, I'm the smartest person in the room. I don't know why I questioned that for four seconds. Or maybe or maybe they're just like, I'm not going to tell anyone that happened. Maybe it's not worth talking about out loud. Maybe I'm just going to sort of leave that behind um, and forget that I had that moment. It makes me wonder if we should just throw away the term imposter syndrome and talk about self-doubt and insecurity. What differs from what I'm calling workplace imposter thoughts and self-doubt and insecurity is this other focus. Like, I really think the fact that there is these sort of discrepancy in expectations that you're sort of thinking other people are overestimating you is actually where the upsides come from. We have to be a lot more careful about the narrative that we're essentially attaching to this phenomenon. When we think about it as universally a bad thing, universally harmful, it sort of tells us, hey, when you have these thoughts you kind of have a problem that you need to eliminate it. And what I'm trying to suggest with my work is that maybe actually it's about how to channel these thoughts productively. Two, it really depends on what you're insecure about. Insecurities are problematic if you just think you suck. But if if you're insecure about not being as good as other people think you are, that's where you find motivation. Hey, other people think you're really smart. Maybe smarter than you think you are, but maybe that's something actually that can be a driver, a motivator. So a lot of people who are successful deal with a lot of imposter syndrome, which actually feeds their success. I think we use it as fuel as opposed to fire that burns down whatever it is that you're creating. Yeah, that's where we can use it to our benefit. Levy ended up deciding to go to the TED conference as an attendee. When she emailed the team about getting a ticket, they invited her to speak a third time. She was about to decline a third time. But first, she phoned a friend. Now say, so, crazy. They want me to do this TED Talk in three weeks. Everybody else has already had all this practice and a coach. This is crazy, right? I'm not going to be able to do it. And she says to me, everybody's not you. She's like, you've been practicing. The fact that you're on the stage every other day, that, that's your rehearsal, okay? You've been speaking for seven years. You got this. And if they didn't believe that you got this, they wouldn't ask you. And she hangs up on me. So with just a few weeks to prepare, Lovey said yes. Now it was time to turn her imposter syndrome into fuel. I was petrified. I was spooked because I was just like, this is the biggest talk of my life. If I bomb it, I'll never get another talk again. <laughs> If I bomb it, the people in this room will be like, oh God, no, I've seen Levy. She's terrible. You don't have to wait for imposter thoughts to go away. You can take three steps to harness them. The first is not to ignore your insecurities. It's to embrace them well in advance. For a few decades, psychologists have distinguished between strategic optimism and defensive pessimism. Think about the last time you were getting ready for a presentation. If you're a strategic optimist, you start to imagine yourself giving the talk and crushing it. 
That positive image of the future builds up your confidence and energizes you to prepare. If you're a defensive pessimist, you have a very different emotional experience. A few weeks ahead, you start to panic. You're gonna forget all your lines and ruin your reputation forever and ever and ever and ever. Yeah, I'm the pessimist. Yeah, I had never thought about myself as a pessimist in that way, but that's exactly it. What I think is funny about it is the crazy things you convince yourself might be true. We see this all the time in school, right? Where the defensive pessimists, they wake up in the middle of the night having just had a nightmare that not only did they fail a test, they did so badly that they lost points on all their previous exams because <laughs> there's no way they could have earned those, right? Okay, you must know now that you, you're not going to bomb on stage. Yeah, like I do know I'm not going to bomb on stage because I can even go with the flow. I think what also made Ted really tough that Ted kind of asks of you to do is memorize almost verbatim. And I think that probably also added to my anxiety a bit because I don't memorize my talks. But here's the thing. Defensive pessimists perform just as well as strategic optimists. They harness their anxiety as motivation. Their insecurities propel them to prepare. Yes. We can use fear and imposter syndrome as motivators. If what we are afraid of is that we are not ready, then usually we'll double down on the work and where we will go out of our way to make sure we are prepared, that we know what we're talking about. We might rehearse the talk 15 times because that day I sure did. I was sitting there with the iPad on my hand for five hours. Just like I sat there and made sure that that talk was even better the night before. So I think the function of fear and all of this self-doubt is it should push us to practice our work more, which will actually be a self-fulfilling prophecy to make us better at it. I've already thought of scenarios A, B, and C. We're not going to let them happen. So <laughs> we're going to try to mitigate risk. <laughs> For defensive pessimists, insecurity is helpful when there's time to prepare. But when it's time to perform, you want to feel secure. So what do you say to yourself to stabilize your confidence? I actually do say like, yo, you got this. You know your stuff. You've been at this for a while. I noticed something interesting there. Lovey didn't say, I got this. She said, you got this. Psychologists find that the way you talk to yourself matters. In a series of experiments, people gave better speeches and made better first impressions when they were randomly assigned to talk to themselves in the second person instead of the first person. Rather than saying, I got this, they said, Lovey, you got this. This is the second step for managing insecurities. In the moment, overcome your doubts by talking to yourself in the second person. It creates some distance from your insecurities. It feels like a boost of confidence from a friend or a coach. It leads you to feel less nervous and see stressful situations as a challenge rather than a threat. And this talk that I memorized three hours before, I got on that stage, flows out of my body like I'd done it 15,000 times. I ran off the stage, and the stage manager stops me and turns me back around and says, I need you to go see the standing ovation you're getting. That talk transformed my life. And I almost didn't do it because I didn't think I was ready for that stage. In just a few years, Levy's talk accumulated over 6 million views. I'm a professional troublemaker. It is our job, it is our obligation, it is our duty 
to speak truth to power, to be the domino. Not just when it's difficult, especially when it's difficult. Thank you. I think you've made it. <laughs> just maybe, maybe you've made it. Thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, that didn't even sound remotely convincing. I, like, I was like, yeah. And I still sound unconvinced. That's interesting, isn't it? It is. Why? And see, I think there it goes. That ambition, you always feel like there's more. Have I made it? Adam, do you think you've made it? Oh, definitely not. Just getting started. <laughs> Adam, how? <laughs> I am fascinated by this, actually. I'm actually really fascinated by this. And that's part of what keeps us going, isn't it? Oh, my God. Isn't it much more of a strange thing when you see it in someone else? Part of the reason why I feel like I haven't made it is that I still have to work really hard for everything, right? Like, it's not coming with ease yet. If I didn't do 45 podcasts, would I have hit the list? Each time I get something, the reason why I don't go, I can't believe it happened, is usually from like, oh my God, the plan actually worked. Not, oh, I can't believe I've earned it. So that's the difference. And I think that is where making it for a lot of us will look like something. Meanwhile, we all have these like ever moving goalposts. I think effortless success is a myth. If you succeed without real effort, it's a sign that you've set your goals too low. Yes, achieving hard things often does become easier over time, but anything worth accomplishing always takes effort. You just learn to make it look easier. Which brings us to a final technique for harnessing imposter thoughts. As you raise your expectations, don't forget to take pride in your achievements. My favorite approach is to reconnect with your younger self. Compare your current success to your past expectations. If you from five years ago or 10 years ago had known what you'd accomplish today, how proud would that version of you be? That's a really, really good strategy to think about that girl who at that point was working as a marketing coordinator at a nonprofit who was making $35,000 for the year that girl would be wildly shocked at this girl, at this woman. Like, she'd be like, what? You did what? You sold how many copies of your book? You were on how many lists? You've been on whose show? Crazy. She would be shocked. But me, I'm like, man, I did it. Okay. <laughs> Next time on Work Life. It seemed like the sort of concept that had been made up in order to convince people that there was such a thing as emotional intelligence and that they might be deficient in it, and thus they had to alter their behavior to compensate for that deficiency. How emotional intelligence has been co-opted as a form of corporate control. Work Life is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by Ted with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Constanza Gallardo, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quint, Ban Ban Cheng, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Joanne DeLuna. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. 
Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Ad stories produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Special thanks to our sponsors, LinkedIn, Logitech, Morgan Stanley, SAP, and Verizon. Appreciation to the following researchers and their colleagues. Michael Kernis on self-esteem stability, Roy Baumeister, Brad Bushman, and Keith Campbell on bullies, Andrew Elliott on self-handicapping, Alice Eagley on underestimating women in male-dominated fields, Jennifer Crocker on the pursuit of external validation, Carol Dweck on performance versus mastery goals, Susan Nolan Hoeksema on rumination, Julie Norum on defensive pessimism, and Ethan Cross on self-talk. For more from Levy, check out her podcast, Professional Troublemaker. And Taylor's stand-up scene is from her show, Quarter Life Crisis, courtesy of Netflix. It used to be this thing where it was like, ooh, don't be too pretty on stage. And I don't think that's a thing anymore. You have to be like non-threatening attractive, where you're not unlikable, but we still want to look at you. But you're not going to take my boyfriend.